The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would please, and open them to the first epistle to Timothy chapter 3. In our study of the Baptist acrostic, we're on the last letter, which is T. And each letter, as you know, represents a doctrine that we as Baptists believe. And this one states that there are two offices or two officers in the church. That's what the T stands for. It stands for two. And that is the office of the pastor and of the deacons. In our church bylaws, we call the scripturally mandated Offices. There are only two of those, and we do believe that the church should have both of these offices. I understand that sometimes when smaller churches that's hard to do, it's hard to find people that are qualified for, for deaconship, but if we can, I think that the church needs both of these offices, of course the pastor, then also the office of the deacons. Now I know that there are, are some churches, some of the, uh, of the fundamental churches that don't have deacons, I believe that they should have, and I don't think that what we ought to put in their place is a lesser office that has different kinds of qualifications. Now, I think we need to to have the office of pastor and deacons. Now, our bylaws do state that these are mandated offices because we believe that the church can have offices uh, for convenience. There are offices that we have in the church that are beneath the level of the pastor and the deacons, and these we wouldn't call scripturally mandated offices, but they are offices that help us to uh, rule the church better, or maybe not rule, but to function in the church better, such as we have a church treasurer, we have uh, a church clerk, a Sunday school superintendent, we have a head usher, and so on. And those are offices that are good for the church, and those that fill them are good people, they have good qualifications, But the qualifications for those other offices are not as stringent as they are for the pastor and the deacons. But we do know this, the Bible does name these two offices and the qualifications for them are given to us in the epistles of 1 Timothy and Titus. Now I'd like for us to turn our attention to 1 Timothy where Paul speaks of the pastor of the church. The last time that we talked about this, I I think now that's a couple, three weeks ago, we spend our time in just the first part of the first verse that says that this, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. And we looked at that and we discussed the method of obtaining a pastor. How does the church select a pastor? How do you identify the man that God would have to lead the church? And that's what I want to discuss a little bit further this evening with you. So we're going to forego the first part of the outline, and we're going to start with uh, number two in our study with our second observation, which is the selection to the office. The selection to the office. Now, the choice of the pastor is one that can be made only by those that are inside this body of Christians. There's no one as I explained the last time, that has the authority, not an outside authority over the church. There's no council, there's no synod, there's no order of prelatical bishops that can appoint a man to be the leader of God's people. This is a choice that's made solely by the congregation, the church of God's people. 
Now, if a man desires the office of a bishop, it says he desires a good work. Now, that doesn't mean that the man chooses to be a pastor in the same way that he would decide on some other career. He doesn't choose it because it might have a good salary that goes along with it. He doesn't choose it because he needs a profession to make a living. He doesn't choose it because he feels that he is just a natural-born leader. And he wants everyone else to recognize that. And so he wants to be the pastor of the church. A man doesn't decide to do this among all the many options that he has uh, and decide that religion and pastoring, that's a viable opportunity for me and the church is a really good gig. And so why, why not do this? Why not be a pastor? I've got to do something to make a living. So why not be the pastor of the church? So it's not, it's not a decision that you make on high school career day that you want to be a pastor. So, so we looked at the process of this, and we started to talk about the steps for getting into the pastorate. Now, we only had time to, to spend on one of these, and we'll just review that very quickly. And that is that the man has to have an inward call. It starts internally when the Lord impresses upon the heart a call to the ministry. The desire to become a bishop, the pastor, is an internal work of the Lord. Now, in the first century... And for a long time afterwards, deciding to become a pastor was really a very difficult decision for a man to make. It was difficult because the man knew that when he decided he was going to lead the church in those days and times, that it would be very hard on his flesh. The pastor of the church was a target. Uh, he, was the, he was the head man. He was the one that the persecutors were always after. Because they knew if they could get to the head man, get to the, get to the, to the person who leads everyone else, you, you, you bottle that person up, stop that person from preaching, then you'll scatter the flock. The sheep need a shepherd. And when the shepherd's not there, then they scatter. Now, I didn't mention this the last time, but I think it is a good case in point that in the Philippian letter, when Paul wrote to that church, he wrote with them, uh, to them with, with encouragement over this very issue that the people had seen Paul and what happened to him and how he was put into prison. And they looked at that and they were thinking, well, if God can do that or that happens to the leader uh, of the people, then what's going to happen to us? And what Paul had to do was write to them and, and to give them encouragement, to let them know that God was not going to let down on any promise that he gave, that he, as an apostle of Christ was not imprisoned except by the will of God. God had put him there for the purposes that he wanted him there. And he just wanted to let the people know that they didn't need to fear anything about their salvation because of his situation. But this is what the persecutors were thinking. They thought, let's get rid of Paul, let's put him into prison, and when the people lose their leader, then they'll all fall away and there won't be a church any longer. And so the, the pastor of the church just had to know this, that there, there's a huge target that gets painted on his back when he decides he's going to do this. Not a position for him to boast about, because after all, who are you leading? Uh, many of the people that you're, you're over, you're trying to shepherd, are, are slaves. And so there wasn't any prestige in the office, at least not as far as the world would be concerned. So pastors were considered to be the scum of the earth. They're, they're the worst of all the Christians. They're, they're the very worst. And as Paul said, we are the off-scouring of the world. But then in a few centuries, things changed. The false church arose, and then false ideas of church government arose. 
And then there were councils. And then there were bishops that were put over large groups of churches. And so becoming a bishop became very lucrative and oftentimes very corrupting. Um, Pride is always a problem, even among Baptist preachers. Pride can be a problem. Uh, There are some preachers that become so big that they're idolized by the people. And they're certainly not immune to corruption. That can happen. But but in any case, uh, a man would not desire the office of a bishop, especially then, unless God had put the desire into his heart. And I could testify uh, to you that many of you would not want to go through the heartaches that it takes to be a pastor. It's much, much easier to work a 9-to-5 job, complete your time, 9-to-5, go home and not worry about anything else, don't think about anything else. That's much easier than pastoring a church we have all the heartaches of the people and doing some of the crazy things that people do i think there's always a tendency for people that sit in the pew especially the talented that sit in the pew who think you know i sure would like to have my shot at pastoring the church like to see what that's all about but you'll you would quickly learn that it's not all about the glory of the pulpit. It's not just standing here behind this place and standing in front of the people. That might be the most satisfying part. And I think the study and all those kinds of things, that's good. But those of you that have actually got up to try to preach a sermon, um, you know how difficult that is. And if you had to do that 12, 15 times a month, then you'd really understand how difficult that is. And then there are the other parts about being a bishop. Uh, It's dealing with the murmuring children of Israel, like Moses, when when he had to pull his hair out at all the things that went on. But I can also testify that if God has put it into your heart to do it, there's nothing else that you want to do. This is the thing that satisfies you. As Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And so like Moses discovered, a pastor will discover that there are errands in the congregation. There are hers in the congregation. Men and women that want to come alongside you and hold your hands up and and help you in the ministry. And they do that because they love the Word of God and they love to be taught the Word of God. And a pastor loves to be in that position where he's supported by people who want to hear the Word of God taught to them. So I have to be very careful when I preach a sermon like this that I don't get to the place that I'm complaining about anyone because I'm not. I think that I've got the best job that there is going. Uh, I enjoy it. I think it's the most important work that a person can do. But this is where it starts. God has to work in the man's heart. He has to cause that desire. And it's just like salvation in this sense, that there, there is no one who desires their salvation. No one wants to come to the Lord until the Holy Spirit first starts to work in his heart. And a man who really desires this and to do it in the right way, he's not going to want to unless the Holy Spirit has worked in his heart and so it begins as an internal work god's going to choose the right person to do this and he'll do it for the right reasons now i would like to make another comment on this because uh, i was kind of thinking about this in the last week or so i highly respect a man like brother oscar bouquets he's the pastor of the bible baptist church in the philippines Uh, most of you are familiar with him Uh, we support his church a little bit differently than we do other missionaries uh, you remember the story about how uh, Brother Oscar and I came across one another, uh, that their church was destroyed in a typhoon in, a, in the Philippines a few years ago, and they didn't have the money to rebuild their church and keep their work going. And so he kind of put out of a, a plea 
for someone to help him, and his plea found its way into my inbox in my email. And I just looked at that, and for some reason I felt the Lord had had just, he tugged at my heart about that, and I just wondered about this man. Is, is there something that we could do to help him? Well, the Lord put us together, and what I learned was that that was a church that had no resources. Uh, they had no way to put their ministry back together again. And there was Brother Oscar Bouquet trying to work there in the Philippines, trying to accomplish the ministry that he had to do without the resources that we just take for granted every day. And so it would be so easy to give up. As a pastor, it would have been easy for him to say, well, that's the end of this. Uh, we, don't, we don't have what we need to carry on in church. And what are you going to do when the people depend upon you and, and you just don't have what you need to try to teach them and, and to help them to grow and to learn and so forth. So this, this came a, uh, was a burden with me. I admire him very, very much because he's not one of the comfortable missionaries, if I could put it that way. He's not one of the missionaries that, that has 50 churches that support him. Now, I certainly do hate to criticize in this area, but we have to admit that the missionary model that we have today is quite different than it was many, many years ago. Uh, today, a missionary is not going to touch the mission field unless he has thousands of dollars banked in order to take care of all of his needs. And so missionary deputation is usually done for a period of about two years, maybe a little, a little bit longer if need be, in order for a missionary to raise all the support that he needs. But as I said, that's a hard thing for us to criticize because many of us pastors live comfortable lives. Not, it's not really hard on us. Financially, not too much hard on us financially, and so I hate to criticize them. But that's why Brother Oscar was such an inspiration to me, because he knows what it's, to, what it's like to be out there working in the field without the resources that you need, and every single day you have to depend upon God to take care of you. Now, I will comment that every once in a while I do get a letter from a missionary like that, that he's gone to the mission field and he went without the support. He said, I felt like God was calling me to do it, and I didn't want to delay. I had the call, and so I went. And they're stuck out there on the mission field trying to do the Lord's work, and they don't have the support that they need, and so they write us a letter, and they plead for us to, to help them if we can. And I look at that, and I, and I see these men that want to do everything that it takes to stay in the Lord's work, and that's just a special calling that God has to put into a man's heart. But then I contrast that with a letter that I received just a few weeks ago. And here was another missionary who said, I can't go. I can't go yet. And he said, I need 5000 more dollars for a shipping container so I can ship all my stuff. And then I need $2,000 for rent when I get there. And then I need another $3,000 for this. And so I'm just not going to go. And he puts out the plea, I've got to have this money before I go. And I just thought about Brother Oscar when I read that letter. He's just out there. He's out there doing the work that he does by the grace of God. And, a, and the Lord has to put that in a man's heart to do that, to go through the struggles and the heartaches and all it takes to carry on the ministry of the Word. But we need to move on here. That was the inward call, and that's what we talked about the last time. But along with the inward call, there has to be something else, and that is the outward call. The inward call is followed by the outward call, and that's when the church recognizes that the man has a gift that's been given to him by God, and that is a different gift than all the other men in the church. The man has the inward call, but he can't make himself the pastor. 
Only the church can do that. So the church has to recognize that the man has the call and then issue that call for him to become the pastor. Thomas Oden, in his book, The Call to Ministry, wrote, The inward call is a result of the continued drawing or eliciting power of the Holy Spirit, which in time brings the individual closer to the church's outward call to the ministry. The external call is an act of the Christian community that by due process confirms the inward call. No one can fulfill the difficult role of pastor adequately who has not been called and commissioned by Christ and the church. This is why the correspondence between inner and outer call is so crucial for both the candidate and the church to establish from the outset with reasonable clarity. So the man recognizes that he has an inward call, and then the church agrees with that call. And that's good when the church sees it, because that confirms that the man did in fact have this inward call, that he was right about it, that his call is genuine, and that the Lord has spoken to him. And so it's, it's like Eli and Samuel in the Old Testament, that Eli recognized that Samuel was getting a call from the Lord. And you remember he said to him, when he speaks, you say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And that's what Samuel did. That was, he was confirmed in that call by Eli. And that's much what the church does when it confirms the inward call of a man to the pastorate. Now Spurgeon said that sometimes the church will judge after the flesh. That sometimes the church will choose a man because of his oratory. You know, we have people, men that, come in to candidate for the office of pastor that is when we're choosing from outside and uh, he, he may come in he may be a very good speaker and so churches will choose the man because of his oratory God forbid that they would choose a man because he tells good stories or because he tells the best jokes but sometimes churches do that and so Spurgeon said sometimes the church will choose after the flesh, but he also said that he would still rather trust God's people than to rely solely on his own decision. And Spurgeon just meant the man has to have a confirmation of his call. If the church agrees with that, then most likely his call inwardly has been the right call. So the man has to have the confirming call because he just cannot install himself into the office. The church has to do that. And so instead of just feeling that he has a call, the church has to agree with it and put him into the office. Now Spurgeon also said something else to his ministry students. He said, the will of the Lord concerning pastors is made known through the prayerful judgment of the church. It is needful as proof of your vocation that your preaching should be acceptable to the people of God. And so when the man has the inward call and the church agrees with an outward call, then the next thing that will come is the ordination to the office. Now let me explain to you just very briefly for a moment um, ordination. Uh, there, it's common to have a ceremony of induction into the office of the pastor. There will be a council that is, um, that is assembled of ordained men, and they come to uh, question the candidate and then to make a recommendation uh, of ordination to the church. Now, that council is usually made up of pastors that come from other churches of like faith, but that council has no authority over the church. They can recommend, uh, they can say, well, you know, he answers all the questions, and that's good, and we recommend that you ordain him, but they don't have the power to ordain. And the ceremony that the man goes through is not the ordination. The ordination is the appointment. 
The ordination is when the church decides and when they vote. That's the ordination. That's the election to the office. Now, going back to Spurgeon again, uh, a great man of God, the most prolific preacher in the history of Christianity since the time of Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, Spurgeon never had a ceremony of induction into the office. In other words, he didn't have that formal ceremony of ordination. But what he did have was he had the vote of the people. And the people said, this is the man that we want into the office. And so questioning a man, having a counsel for that is customary and it's ordinary perhaps, but that's not absolutely necessary. You don't have to have that. The church is capable of ordaining without any outside recommendations or anything else. The church is capable of electing a man to the office without any outside help if they want to do it that way. And so when the man and the church come together on this call, that's a match that we say is made in heaven. Now let me show this to you for just a moment. If you take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 1, we're just going to look at one verse here, and, and I want to, to show you this in the selection of, uh, of an apostle to replace Judas. And I, and I just want to take a look at this and so we can see how this was decided. In Acts chapter 1 and in verse number 24, it says, And they prayed and said, Lord, thou Lord, which knoweth the hearts of all men, show whither these two thou hast chosen. Now, when the church prayed and voted, they fully expected that the outcome of that vote would be the one that was already predetermined by the Holy Spirit. Now, you would note that very well. If you, if you didn't believe in election or predestination, you, you would see here that the apostles definitely believed in it. That choices are made by the Holy Spirit. And we make choices... But those choices that we make are backed up by the Holy Spirit because he makes the choice at the first. Now, we also see that in the book of Acts, verse 28, uh, 20, verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now, Paul knew very well the instructions that he would give to churches when he would say, you need to select bishops, you need to select pastors for the churches. But then when he addressed them, he didn't say, well, the church is the one that put you into the office. He said, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. So he was very much aware that the selection is made by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit then is ultimately the one who puts the man into the office. But it is, of course, interesting for us to look at that and see that there is human responsibility involved in making the choice. And if you read all of the Acts passage concerning this choice of, of uh, Matthias to replace Judas, you'll find there that the church made a decision that they had to vet these two men, Justice and Matthias, according to their qualifications. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, it also speaks of qualifications. And so the church has a responsibility to do the vetting in order to get to the point that the Holy Spirit can, can guide that vote. So the church is looking at this. Does the man have the behavioral qualifications of 1 Timothy? Does uh, he have the uh, biblical qualifications? Does he have the instruction, the learning that he has to have, the doctrinal qualifications of 1 Timothy? The Holy Spirit doesn't call anybody to the ministry that doesn't. So we wouldn't expect that the Holy Spirit would guide the selection of men that aren't qualified. 
So this is what the church does. It has to look at the qualifications. They have to decide, is this a godly man? That's the behavioral requirements. And then they have to decide, can he effectively communicate the Word of God? Can he help people to understand the Word of God? And does he teach with enough depth that the people actually need some help understanding? You know, I know that there are many preachers that want to keep things simple all of the time. That they never want to stretch the people's learning. They never want to cause them to think about anything. And so when they preach their messages, they preach a uh, a few scriptures that are linked together with multiple stories and illustrations. But I look at that kind of preaching and I just sit back and I think, well, let, let's save that for Sunday school. Let's use that over there. I, I feel the opposite about this, that if you perfectly understand the first time around what I have to say, then maybe I'm speaking too shallow. M maybe there's just not enough depth there. Now, sometimes it might be the lack of understandings because I don't explain it properly. But I do want you to go away thinking about what's been said and having that weigh on your mind as you go through the week that you can think about what's been said. And much of the time, sermons are repetitions of things that we know. And we do have to be reminded of things that we know. But I also want there to be some times when you go away from a sermon and you say, you know something, I learned something today. Uh, I've learned something that I didn't know before. And the studiousness and the knowledge of the pastor will come through in those kinds of sermons. And there isn't a higher complaint that a pastor could get when someone says, well, it's obvious you've been studying. It's obvious. Because many times pastors don't. And that's also obvious. Now, lastly, when we talk about the call, there's an inward call, there's an outward call. But I want to add something here in the few minutes that we have left that might seem to you to be just a little bit out of place, but this is very important. And that is thirdly, that the call to the pastorate is a restricted call. This is also very important. Now there are qualifications in First Timothy that we'll get to, and that's all about the what a man has to be like in order to become a pastor and and uh, not everyone is qualified to do it. That, that's evident. The qualifications themselves restrict the calling. All of those do. But I want to pull out just one of these, uh, one particularly, because we have so much trouble over this today. The text says, if a man desire the office of a bishop. You might want to underline the word man or circle that, because here is a really good reason that you want to use the King James Version. Many of the newer versions translate this, if anyone wants to become an overseer. And the truth of the matter is, that word can be translated as anyone. But I think that the King James translators had this right, and I think that uh, this is a guided choice by God, probably, that um, they use the word man because there's so much of this unbiblical attitude of the selection of women as pastors. Now, even if this is translated as anyone, there's just a mountain to climb to get over uh, for the rest of the references to men and women that are in this particular passage and also the one that comes before it. Man here does not refer to mankind in general. How do I know that? That's because verse number 2 says the bishop has to be the husband of only one wife. And I'll get into that into another message. 
But for now, I want us to see this, that the office of leadership in the church is only for men. That a woman cannot be the pastor of the Lord's church. And then I want to add this as well, that the pastor's wife is not the co-pastor. She's not the neck that turns the head and becomes the de facto pastor of the church. And sadly, in some of our Baptist churches, that is the model. That everybody has to hold the pastor's wife up like she is a co-pastor of the church. Now, you ought to respect the pastor's wife and pray for her and all of that, but she is not the pastor of the church. Now, I suppose there might be some who would prefer to translate this as anyone because you have you know people that want to ordain uh, gays and lesbians into the ministry and uh, lesbians, I, I think they have a relationship or, and even, even uh, among gay men that they have a relationship where just one of them is called the husband. Now, if you get that bad at Bible interpretation, close it up, go home. Just, just forget about it. But then there are others who haven't taken that step. Uh, they're not into the ordaining of homosexuals. Uh, most charismatics, Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, and so on, they've not yet surrendered to gay ordination. But what they have done is to allow women to get into the pastorate. And I will say they are wrong, that they are heretical, and when they do that, they descend into multiple heresies. It doesn't stop with the pastorate. It goes into other things. If you ruin leadership, then everything else is going to be wrong. So 1 Timothy 3 gives qualifications for men. Now let's take a look here for just a minute how Paul prefaces this teaching in the second chapter of 1 Timothy. And he gives a very, very clear indication that, that women can't be pastors. So if you look at verse 11 in chapter 2, starting there, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Why can't women be pastors? Well, our explanation here is that it upsets God's order. This is a creational argument. Adam was the first form, and then it was Eve. And it was not Adam that was deceived by the serpent. It was Eve that was deceived by the serpent. Adam was deceived by Eve, not the serpent. He fell prey to the big baby blue eyes, and so he was deceived because he wanted to, to satisfy her rather than satisfy God. Now, the Bible teaches that the woman is the weaker vessel, but all of us men know this. The woman is the weaker vessel until we as men encounter the woman. And then it seems like we become the weaker vessel. But emotionally, women do, do not... They don't fit pastoral work. They're not made for pastoral, pastoral, uh, pastoral work. Uh, you, you can kick me over that later if you want. But when you do, you know, you come with your Bible and hit me with that. Because we look into the Scriptures and we find there are no women pastors in the Scriptures. There are no qualifications that are given for women pastors. There are no Orthodox churches throughout history until recently that had, and they're not Orthodox, but have women as pastors of churches. Now, the prohibition of women as pastors is not a misogynist view. That's a biblical command. The head of the woman is the man. The head of the man is Christ. That's God's order. 
And the word says the woman is not to have authority over a man. Now, just a moment ago, I said uh, there are no women preachers in the Bible, no women pastors. Well, I'm going to qualify that just a little bit because there may have been one. Turn to Revelation chapter 2 and let's take a look at this one. Let's read about this one woman pastor in a church. This is the Lord's message to a very, very messed up church. Revelation chapter 2 and beginning in verse number 18. Revelation 2.18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith, and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Hold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. What is a woman preacher? She is a Jezebel. Do I need to tell you the story of Jezebel? Now, I don't think that this woman's real name was Jezebel. I think I might have said something about this before. You know, nobody, you know, it's just like Judas. Nobody names their boys Judas. Nobody names their daughters Jezebel. So it's unlikely that this woman's real name was Jezebel. But this is not a metaphorical story, I don't think. This woman is called Jezebel because of her character. She was a wicked woman. And what she did is she stepped in where God said she couldn't go. She took authority over the church, and so she is called Jezebel. And every woman who stands in a pulpit is Jezebel. And all the men that sit out there and listen to her are Ahabs. Now, I, I'm, now I'm going to kind of step into something here. I want to give you an opinion about, about something. And I'm not trying to make this a doctrine. It's, it's a personal preference of mine. I do not like reading theological books that are written by women. I don't want to be instructed in the Word of God by a woman. That, that's just me. I'm not saying that women are not intelligent. I'm not saying that women can't be good teachers. I'm not saying that women aren't good and godly. I'm saying that I believe that it's out of their sphere to instruct men. And if you have a problem with that, talk to my wife. She can help you with that. Now, I, I have to tell you this one because uh, this is um, really interesting how some try to get around the things that we read in Scripture. Now, as you know, I, I don't like women to come up here and to speak behind the pulpit, at least not in a church service. You know that I've made uh, an exception for our business meetings when we had a, a woman church clerk. But you know also that I've been very careful that I let you know that when we're about to enter business meeting that we are dismissing from the worship service of the church. And um, so I would try to make that clear distinction between worship and the business meeting. I don't want women to give testimonies in the church, not while we're having the worship service. Now, last year, when Brother Wong came, and the first time that he preached in our church, he had his wife to read her testimony in the Sunday school class. 
And um, I'll have to tell you that I agonized for a long time about that, about whether I wanted to do it. And so I finally did agree to it. And I told him, though, the only way that I'll agree to it is if you stand by her when she gives the testimony and it's only be done in the Sunday school class. We're not going to do that in the worship service of the church. Now, if you want to fault me for for the woman church clerk and the Sunday school testimony, you can do that. I'll, I'll take the criticism if I'm inconsistent about it. I'll bear the inconsistencies if there is one. But uh, I want to stand strong on this about women standing behind the pulpit to address the congregation. Now, now back to how people try to get around the prohibition of women speaking in the church. I know a pastor who's a pastor of a very, very large um, Southern Baptist church, uh, one that has about 20,000 members or more, uh, really a mega church. And he, he was preaching on the same subject that we're talking about tonight. Now, he, he was dealing with this in a different vein. I think that he was talking mainly about 1 Timothy chapter 2. And what he wanted to do was to give a demonstration of how a woman could rightfully speak in the church. And so while he was preaching this message, he called to his wife, who's sitting out in the congregation, and he asked her to come to the pulpit. And he said to her, I give you permission to speak. And then she began to address the congregation. Now, his idea was that because he was under the authority of Christ, and uh, he was the one standing in the pulpit, that he could pass that authority along to his wife, that he could give her permission to do this because he stood in the place of Christ. Now, I think that's a very inventive way to try to get around the text. And, uh, uh, you know, you think the authority comes from Christ to the man, then man to the woman. So as a pastor, he says, I, I can give her the authority to speak. So that's his example. Now, to that, I would say, let's just skip the middleman in that. And uh, he doesn't know what he's doing. So let's just skip him. And let's go directly from the woman to Christ. And let's see where the authority lies then. And then I can tell you what Christ would say is, man, you shut up and sit down and your wife sit down too because you don't have any business preaching behind that pulpit. Now, if you want to shut all the thing down, you just look at chapter 2 and you see there that it says that a woman is to be silent in the church. It's hard to preach with your lips sewed shut, which is what I think should be done to all the Jezebels, quite frankly. Uh, the pastor of the church should be a man. The authority from the pulpit is Christ to the man, and women are not to take the authority of the assemb over the assembly of God's people. And then I also want to add this. As long as you know we're on the subject, we might as well just get it all out here. Uh, I think a man behind the pulpit ought to be a manly man. We don't need soft, effeminate men behind the pulpit. The pastor is a leader. He has to quit himself like a man. He has to be someone who takes charge. It doesn't mean that he has to be hard, but it does mean that he has to be strong and determined. And, of course, it doesn't hurt for him to be a fine physical specimen, as I am, but that's beside the point. A few weeks ago, there were some of us that were standing out in the lobby, and Jason was comparing ties between us, and he looked at my tie, and he looked at, uh, he looked at uh, Matt's tie, his tie, and... Uh, he was questioning the manliness of Matt's tie. <laughs> Matt, Matt had some cute little designs on his tie, and, and so Matt was trying to make an excuse for that. And so he, he said, well, I'm 
just trying to get in touch with my softer side or something like that. And for that split second, I thought he was going to say, I'm trying to get in touch with my feminine side. And that just isn't going to work around here, not, not for people that are, are, are leading. So I have, a, I have this problem with, with pastors that are not manly men. And I do have to tell you, I think many of them are too soft. Uh, the pastorate is downgraded by a man who wants to appear less intimidating to the people. And so uh, he comes in blue jeans and madras shirts and flip-flops when he comes in the pulpit because they just want to be like everybody else, you know, make everybody comfortable with who I am. And then I, I don't like the idea, this, this is going on a lot of churches too, where the pulpit's completely removed. And the pastor just wanders around the, the platform and he has a conversation with people. We're just having a little conversation with one another. No, the pulpit is the place for the authority of God's Word. And when we preach the Word of God, we have to preach it as the place of authority here. We have to be direct and powerful. And the Word of God deserves all the respect that we can give it. And I just think that that flows right into the presentation that you make. I mean, what you look like when you come into the pulpit. Respect the Word of God if you're going to preach. Some of you that are as old as I am uh, may remember when Jimmy Carter was the president. That's a very painful memory if you go back that far. But uh, you may remember Carter got a whole lot of criticism uh, for his fireside chats. Any of you older ones remember that, what they used to call Carter's fireside chats? So he would address the, the country in a cardigan sweater. And there were people who thought, that's just not presidential. He just doesn't look like the president when he's sitting there in his, in his sweater. I don't know if he had reindeer on him or what. You know, I can't remember. I was a little bit younger. But, but he addressed dressed them in his sweater. And, and they talked about the White House state dinners and things like that, that they were more like chicken dinners and, and back, backyard barbecues. And so when Ronald Reagan became the president, there were just a lot of people that were associated with the White House, like people that worked in the White House, that, that said they were really glad that someone restored the dignity of the office of the presidency. Now, you remember President Reagan, and, and I, I'm going to give you, I'm still talking preferences here, right? So uh, you remember President Reagan, how he was always called the master communicator. I mean, you, you listen to him speak. I mean, he could turn a phrase like nobody's business. I remember um, I was, uh, it was 1986, uh, January of 1986, and we were vacationing at that time when I used to have a little bit of money. We were vacationing in Europe, and we were in Innsbruck, Austria, when I was walking down the street, and I, and I hadn't heard any news at all, but I saw in the paper there uh, in the street in Innsbruck about the space shuttle exploding. And for that week that we were there, you know, we tried to catch as much news as we could as uh, uh, that was all talked about on all the news channels and so forth. And I don't know if you remember or not, but uh, when that happened, President Reagan just gave a speech about that, that terrible tragedy. And he incorporated into his speech a line from the poem High Flight. And this is what Reagan said. We shall never forget them, nor the last time we saw them, as they prepared for their mission and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. That was an impressive statement, very impressive statement. Reagan could talk like that. That has no, not a thing to do with my sermon tonight. I just wanted to tell you that. But may, maybe, that, maybe that gives us all a little bit of hope now for, for our country. You know, we've been listening here for the past two years, it seems like, to hellacious Hillary and Donald Duck. And it's just good to, it's good to, 
to know that, you know, there's some statesmen out there somewhere that may lead our country. But I will say this also. Women have absolutely no business being president. And I'm available for the kicking session afterwards still. Let's wrap the message up. Uh, let, me, let me just end it with, that, with, with this thought. Uh, that, that God has a created order. The woman is not to have authority over the man. I was thinking about this. Uh, and it reminded me of something that I was teaching in the Ten Commandments when uh, we were on this particular part. We were talking about the Sabbath. And I was speaking about the change from a Saturday Sabbath to a Sunday Sabbath. That it was a change of the, of the celebration of creation to the celebration of the new creation. And it's interesting that we read in the New Testament, in the second chapter of Timothy, 1 Timothy that we just read, that Paul referred to the created order and woman's subjection to the man. And what I noticed about that as I was thinking about it, that the new creation did not upset the order of the original creation of the man over the woman. It, it didn't change. The, the, the New Testament did not change anything about the Old Testament and the male-female relationships. Christ came to fulfill the law. And so he wasn't going to upset anything that's in the law that's a part of the moral code. And so to postulate that a woman become, become a pastor, could become a pastor of the church is to figure that somehow, or try to figure out, somehow God has changed the created order and he's rewritten the code that's in the constitution of man. And you're not going to find that anywhere in the scriptures. Men are always men, women are always women, and those roles are never reversed. So I've probably caused enough trouble for tonight. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop with that. The, the church gets its pastor from the inward call. The man is touched by the Holy Spirit for the work. Then the Holy Spirit works within the church to have them to recognize that inward call. And then they issue the outward call. And then when that happens and the man accepts the outward call, then the church has its pastor. And if the Holy Spirit is in it, it will always be a man. And it will always be the right man. And we're never going to go wrong when we follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word that we've learned tonight. Uh, we thank you for the great principles that were taught here. And if we just stick to these and obey the word of God as we should, you'll work everything out for us in the right way. We can trust you in, in everything that you say. So Lord, help us to do that. Uh, we thank you for our church. Such a great blessing to pastor these people and uh, I just pray, Lord, that uh, your blessings would be upon each and every one of them as we work together here for your cause to win people in this community to Jesus Christ. Thank you for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.